All right, I'm just going to introduce Barb a little, and I won't tell you too much about her because she will tell you a lot about her. So I just wanted to share just a tiny, tiny bit about what a blessing she has been. My life, we were in the same Joshua Bible study. I don't know how many years ago that was, Pam, three or four? Four? Because Leland was pretty little. Um, I had four little kids and felt incredibly scatterbrained and insufficient in many areas of my life, including Bible study. And I was teaching with Pam and Jackie, and I remember thinking, why in the world did Pam ask me to do this? Uh, And then leading a small group table. And I grew so much. I can't say it enough. That study was absolutely just an anchor for me. And I love the Old Testament, and I love it even more now (laughs) because of that. And Barb was at my table, and that's when I got to meet her. And she was so kind and gentle and wise and patient and encouraging. And I had no idea who was at my table, such a spiritual giant. She should have been teaching, and I should not have been, but the Lord knows. And I was just so encouraged by the time with her and digging into God's word and watching the cycle in Joshua of God's faithfulness to his people through strife and suffering and blessing, rebellion and reconciliation. It continued for Israel, but God remained steadfast in his faithfulness to his people. And every comment that I felt like came out of Barb's mouth was that, how faithful God is. She always brought us back to that. And so that's one of the reasons I was so excited to have her come today. And then it just so happened to be the topic, and it just, the Lord is so kind when all those things fall into place. So she's going to come up and share with us about God's faithfulness to her. Thank you, Barb. Thank you so much for a warm welcome, and I really enjoyed already the time that we've spent just chatting around the tables, some familiar faces and new faces, and I love that. Um, I love this idea that you have moms. Okay, a mom's group, I never had that experience when I was raising my two boys. And I think you're just fortunate to have a group of ladies who can come together on a regular basis that you get to know and share with and trust and and that you all love God together. So I think that's amazing. Um, I'm happy to talk with you about God's faithfulness in my life uh, because He has been so faithful. When I talk, you'll get a feel for how old I am, how many years and decades I've lived, and how much God has been there every step of the way. He is just amazing. Um, He's gracious, and my family, I owe him everything. Um, He's been my abiding peace, my joy, my comfort in times of loss and trial. He is my salvation, of course. He's my dearest friend. He's the lover of my soul. I am nothing, would be nothing without him. Um, So I'm going to try to give you like a little bird's eye view of his faithfulness through various uh, times in my life. I'm going to start with childhood and kind of just drop in and talk a little bit about it. I'm going to take you through teen years and young adulthood, and and then I call it the rest of the story because it's so long. (laughs) It's just You don't want me to go decade by decade, even. Um, Before I go into that, though, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Um, This isn't a talk about race or ethnicity, but you see my face. You you know I'm here. And um, I don't think you would, some things that I talk about, you might not understand unless you kind of knew a little bit about what the world was like where I grew up when I was a child. I grew up in the 1950s, 
in Alabama. I grew up on a farm just north of Montgomery. Has anybody been to Alabama? Do you know the state? Wow, I'm impressed. Where about? Just on the coast, on the shore. Okay, the Gulf Shore, the pretty part. <laughs> um, but uh, Montgomery is in the central part of the state. It's the capital, and it was the heart of a lot of the civil rights activity that came that was so positive later. But when I grew up, we were on a f small farm with a, f a family farm, and those were the days of Jim Crow laws. Uh, they segregated blacks and whites in every part of our life in schools, in school buses, um, doctor's offices, theaters, parks, I'm just looking at my list, swimming pools, and even cemeteries. Everything had to be separate. If there wasn't a separate building, then you had to have a separate entrance. So as a black person, I would always look for the side door or the back door. Uh, and you, you just, you couldn't go in the same door even. And if you violated that, um, you could be arrested, or depending on how severe if somebody thought it, what you did was, you might be the victim of some vigilante kind of group activity like the KKK. They were still active when I was a child. The basic idea was we were expected to be subservient. We were um, not protected by the law. We were supposed to be submissive, and I have seen my dad when he was out in this town going about being very submissive to any white person, no matter how young he was. So it was a humiliating and oppressive system. And I just tell you that for background, um, because it didn't change until I was about 20 years old. That's exactly what I lived with all my life. And so there's a challenge, of course, to say, how do you make a child feel valuable when they're confronted with that kind of world. Well, I learned a lot from my family's heritage. I learned from my family because I was blessed. My first uh, testimony of God's faithfulness was that he put me in a family of Christian people. My grandparents, my, parent, my mother, many of my aunts and uncles were Bible-believing Christians. And so we kind of lived in our own little world where um, they protected me as much as they could. They sheltered me as much as they could from what was going on around me. But they taught me to love the Lord. They taught me to follow the Bible. They prayed. Um, they trusted the Lord in spite of what they had to contend with, which was more severe than I experienced as a child. I mean, they, I was still kind of sheltered, but they were not. One of my favorite Psalms growing up was Psalm 90. And so I'm just going to read the first two verses of that because I loved it. I heard it over and over again. And I think it, it points to my family. It says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And that's, that was our rock. Um, I thank God for the legacy of faith he gave, especially I'm gonna think about the moms, since you're moms, and we're, we're all moms here tonight. I'll go back to my great-grandmother. Her name was Grace Smith. I've done some research on the family. She was born about 1845 in Alabama. She would have been born a slave. So she's my, my great-grandmother. Dora, 
My grandmother that I knew was born about 1877. She was born free, but she lived her whole life under Jim Crow. My mother, Annie, was born 1919. Of course, she was born free, um, but she still had to deal with the same kind of issues. They were limited in what their opportunities were at the time. But I, what I want you to take away, though, is these three, this, these three generations of mothers prayed and worshiped and waited. They weren't bitter. They weren't hostile. They weren't angry. They trusted the Lord despite everything. Um, my mother was the first person to share the gospel with me. She um, told me, helped me understand that even as an innocent little child, I still needed a savior because I was not saved on my own and I was not good and I, you can't be saved that way. So she explained the gospel to me and early on I felt God drawing me to him. I loved him early because my family loved him. I, it's, it's what we did. We went to church every, every Sunday and and by that, if you know the South, that meant you went all day Sunday, pretty much. <laughs> you didn't just drop in. And so church was a vital part of our lives. And um, there's, a, there's a verse in Deuteronomy, I didn't write it down, where it talks about you should talk about the Lord all day with your children on a regular basis, make it a part of their lives. Well, that's what our life was like. Just as they're working in the fields, you know, somebody would either break out into a song or a hymn or, or they would talk about. They'd say, child, we gotta trust the Lord, you know. So it just was a part of me. But I knew I needed to, uh, say, make my own decision. So at the age of 10, I went forward at an old-fashioned revival meeting where you, they called you up. You had to go to the front of the church and profess my faith in Christ. I said yes to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That was the beginning of a journey that had me growing in Christ to this day. It's an ongoing journey. Um, and I am glad I was saved early because all the things that came into my life later, I don't think I would have handled as well as if I hadn't had that faith underneath. It was like my bedrock. For example, as a young Christian, I struggled, you know, how to reconcile Jesus' teaching about loving your enemy, loving people, forgiving people who oppress you. When I had my example right there in front of me, um, I began to feel some resentment about the mistreatment as I grew older. I'll just be honest, you know, my parents had said one thing, but I was like, you know, we should change this. This shouldn't, this is not right. So I began to be troubled because I didn't see prayers being answered. And I wasn't, it was just a, you know, teenager. So I was beginning to develop a sense of bitterness that these people aren't, aren't kind to us and I shouldn't, I don't have to love them. Uh, but God drew me back from that through my family because I looked at their example and they stayed steady. They trusted in the Lord. They were faithful to the teaching of the Lord. They lived at peace with everyone as far as it was possible for them to do so. And they kept praying. Prayer was a big thing for our family, which obviously that's a good thing. Um, <clears throat> but they never lost hope that things would get better. What they did was, I think they accepted that their lives might not be better, but they knew they were looking toward the future for their children and their grandchildren, like me, that things would be better that way. I, saw, I found in Psalm 103, 
verse 6, uh, a verse that I think captures their attitude. They believe that the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. You leave it in the hands of the Lord. And my grandparents would often say, vengeance is the Lord's. We, we just go and do what we can do and, not, and leave that. So they taught me to build on um, my future by staying in school, getting good grades, that's what they would say, and just be as good as I could be and let the Lord take care of the rest. So let's fast forward. So they had given me all this encouragement, but I didn't really know what that meant. Like, what was I supposed to do by the time I was a high school senior? And I came up with the idea that, you know, I could just go to a business college and get a, a, a certificate as a secretary or something like that. I loved working in offices. I thought that would be like the best future in the whole world. <laughs> so I told my mother that. I was like, I just want to be a secretary. I just want to go do that. And, uh, but she and God, I think, had a different plan for me because she knew there weren't that many places where I could even work. Like, how many, how many black businesses were there? And I wasn't going to get hired anywhere else. So she, um, she started, she sat in to talk me into going to college. It was her dream because she hadn't realized that, that I should go, I should get more education. She thought that, was, she knew that was the ticket for me and would be what I needed to do. My mom was a very quiet and sweet person, very kind and gentle. But when it came to that decision, she turned into a tiger. <laughs> she just, every morning I would wake up and she'd be there in the doorway saying, this is why you need to go to school. I mean, every day she had a new, new reason. <laughs> and uh, I'd be like, oh, yeah. So she went on and on that way. And finally, I mean, I always respected her. So I just went, OK, fine. I give up. I'll, I'll do it. Uh, and I told her I would go to college for one year. You have one year to make this work. <laughs> and after that, I'm going to go back to business school. So, um, so I went. I, went we got me in, I got enrolled in school. I went to Alabama State University in Montgomery. And still, I wasn't convinced that college was the right thing for me, even though I did well that first year. So she still, she knew she needed to do a little bit more to lock this in. So the next summer, my friend was going to go to New York to work as a, a maid up in New York City, a nanny maid, live-in maid. And so my mom said, yeah, you should do that too. So she sent me off to do that because she said, you'll get to see what your life might be like if you don't finish school. And I went thinking, oh, New York, this is going to be great. I get to see New York City, maybe a Broadway play or something. I don't know. I didn't get to do any of that. I just worked really hard and made almost no money. <laughs> so, so I came home, and uh, she had won. I was like, OK. You and God figure this out. I'm just going to go get my degree and, and then go on to, to graduate school. I say that. It seems kind of light, but I can see God's hand in that, that he, he had a plan. He had a, what he wanted me to do. He had given me a certain ability, and he knew that there was a future for me, and I kept trying to deviate, and he, with my mother, kept me on track. So I thank him for that, and I thank her for that. She was wise. Um, meanwhile more of the backdrop. Um, this is the 60s now, and the civil rights movement is going full swing, and especially in places like Alabama. Um, there's a lot of violence. Churches are being bombed. There's a lot of things happening in the background, and I'm just trying to get my way through college and wanting to participate where I could to stand up for 
my rights or the rights of people without being um, anti hostile or violent or anything like that. And I did get a chance to participate in the march from Selma to Montgomery at the end of that. And I did get to hear Martin Luther King give his speech that day, live with my ears. So, and it was a wonderful thing because it just built confidence. It just said, we'll do the right thing. We will, we will not spread hate or anything like that. And in the meantime, in my junior year, I met this wonderful man who was very quiet, who sat in the back of one of my English classes. And I noticed him. And he noticed me. And uh, his name is Calvin Winbush. And he was from Mobile. And we met. I know we didn't know. We knew we loved each other. But we had no idea that God really, how much he had put us together and how what a good match we were. And uh, we've grown together in Christ together in our faith. And we've grown in our love for each other. 55 years now, we've been together. He is my best friend on this earth. And he's God's gift to me. I know he is. And, and I think he'd say the same thing. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> so, yes, he's got a good reason. Um, so we taught school. Uh, we both were teachers, so we, taught, we moved to Georgia to teach. But after two years of that, we were so desperate to leave the South because we had gotten a dream of, you know, life could be different. It could be better. And we had a dream, too, after we got married, that if we had children, I wrote down, we wanted to have our children grow up in a place where they would not be limited by the color of their skin. It just, we'd heard Martin Luther King's speech, and, but it was just in our hearts that you should be free. You should be able to live free. But we didn't know for sure whether that was even really possible. Could, could we live in 1968, this was? Could we live somewhere where we wouldn't have the, the boundaries that we had learned to live with? We didn't know, but we say God knew. God had a plan. That's back to what you were talking about, Julia. God sees us in our struggle, and he knows, and he, he, he does act. Um, he put a plan together that unfolded very quickly from February of 68 to um, April. We went through several job interviews. And the next thing you know, we're coming to Rochester, Minnesota for interview with IBM. Um, and that was successful. It was a good interview. We uh, went to look at the town. And as we rode around Rochester, Calvin and I thought, oh, this looks like the place where we could live. And, and realize some of the dreams we have for ourselves and for our children when they're born. Um, and so we were doing that tour, and I asked the man, the rep, I said, OK, you've taken us all over town now. Where do the black people live in this town? You know, because I was looking for a black neighborhood, an area where I, where I needed to get myself into. And he said, um, you can live anywhere you want to live. You just pick your house, what you can afford. And I was, I was floored. I'm going to tell you, it was the first time I'd ever thought I could live somewhere. I could live anywhere. I didn't have to live here or there. And it's a freeing thing. I mean, you don't think about it, but I was, I was like, okay, this is it. This is the dream. So, so we, uh, by June that year, we were ready to move to Rochester. Um, I say immigrated because it was a very strange place. <laughs> 
there were only 250 black people there, I think, out of 40,000 or whatever, and, um, and it was foreign. And I, I just wrote, made a note here, nowhere in my wildest dreams had I planned to move to Minnesota. When I, that wasn't where I thought my dream was going to be, because I only knew two things about Minnesota, well, three maybe. Um, Paul Bunyan and, and Babe the Blue Ox <laughs> from eighth grade, and, um, and that it was cold. <laughs> that was the only other thing. But you know, we were willing to leave family. Somebody talked about that. Lauren talked about family. Loved my family. We were willing to leave family and the familiar to come for freedom, and that's why we came here, and that's why God brought us here. Um, but there was a problem. Nothing is ever 100% easy. I got hired at IBM and Calvin did not. So there we were. Now what do we do? Um, are we supposed to stay? Is this what God wants for us? Or was he going to go back to Georgia and I was going to stay? Were we both going to leave and give up the dream? We, did, I, we didn't know. We prayed. We waited. And at the absolute 11th hour when he had to make a decision, he found a job, and he got an interview, and the supervisor said, I like you. I think you have the right uh, preparation for this job, uh, right qualifications, but there's a test to be taken before I can hire you. This was, he was in Rochester. So the supervisor said, I'll drive you to St. Paul. I'll wait for you to take the test. If you pass the test, I'll hire you. And that's what he did. This man that we had not met before that interview <laughs> And I, I have to say this, that was one of the first times we had encountered white people who would be nice to us, who, who, would, be, who would care and be kind. And, and, you know, so it was, it was like, okay, change your, it forced, forced us to change our mindset too and open up, continue to open ourselves up to see people as individuals and not in any kind of group mode. So that was very helpful. So he, he did, um, we were able to move and settled in here in 60, 68 the first time. I won't even tell you about the, the whole <laughs> move back and coming back. But I'll, I'll skip ahead to tell you that we had two children, two sons. Uh, we were able to have them grow up in Minnesota and experience so much of the things that we had dreamed for them. Um, they've, had, they've been successful, they've had opportunities. Whatever they were able to do, whatever their skills and their gifts were, they've had those opportunities, and that's all that I, I wanted for them. Now I'm going to fast forward again to the 80s and the 90s, because for me that was a midlife crisis, if you will, or a season of really deep soul-searching um, and spiritual growth, it turned out. There were these were decades of deep losses, great losses in our families. Our aunts and uncles and cousins and siblings and parents all died. And um, suddenly I found myself no longer a part of a large, loving family that I depended on for my support, but suddenly I was the matriarch of the family. I was, you know, I wasn't no longer this young, the, the, uh, the one that everybody kind of looked down and took care of. Uh, I wasn't ready for that. I missed their encouraging voices. I missed my mom giving me advice and still being able to be a sounding board, and my aunt and my favorite uncle. I was not ready, but I had no choice. So I sought the wisdom of the Lord. I went back and I tried to remember everything I could about 
what they had taught me, what they were like, what they had faced. I did, you know, Ancestry.com. I did research. But mostly I went back to the Bible. I spent a lot of time in the Psalms. I would just sit and read them over and over and over and just weep because there, were, there was a lot of hurt in, in me. Um, and I needed the Lord to heal me. I'd read my mother's, I'd go through my mother's Baptist hymnal, and if you know, I can't sing a lick, but when I'm by myself, <laughs> I do pretty well. Uh, but I would just use that as a way to cry out to the Lord. I remember those old familiar hymns and songs that my mother sang. Um, and I asked, I cried out to the Lord to heal the deep hurts that I still carried from the early years of growing up in the South. I asked him to mend all the broken places in my life to renew and rebuild and enable me to go forward to be the light of Christ in my family, to live out Christ for my kids as my family had done for me. So that was my burden was to take what they'd given me and give it out to my, my family and to other people that I meet. Um, and once again, God heard and he saw and he heard all my cries. He put a new song in my mouth. He filled my heart with a joy and a love for, uh, for people that I hadn't had before. He flooded me with forgiveness for my anger and bitterness that I had been carrying. And he gave me a heart of forgiveness for those who had wronged me. He blessed me with two, one with our family, with two sons and their wives. Uh, grandchildren, and he just transformed my life. And he's made, he's put me at peace and given me a joy that I, I love to just, I love other people. So, and I hope that radiates through. Um, as I said at the outset, I owe everything that I am to the continuing work of God in my life. I am forever grateful for the mothers who loved me and obeyed God and willingly sacrifice for me as they did. Um, I just uh, am so I'm so blessed because they had to have more struggle than I did, but uh, I'm been, I benefited. I stand here on the shoulders of my grandmothers and grandfathers, as uh, because they were always were building us up. They were always pushing me forward. So I'm I'm just going to pray that God will bless each of you and your families. Um, that he will continue to bless your, the next generation in your family and that he will do that in my family. I still cover them in prayer because the days are hard now for Christians and especially so. So I'll be praying for your families as well. So thank you for being attentive and uh, such a good audience.